Hello and welcome to the Mile End Institute podcast, which is coming to you from Queen Mary, University of London. I'm Lindsay Jenkins, Deputy Director at the MEI, and today we're going to be discussing women, media and elections, representation and marginalisation in British politics by Dr Emily Harmer and published by Bristol University Press. Dr Emily Harmer is Senior Lecturer in Media at the University of Liverpool. Her research interests centre on the relationship between gender, media and politics and the extent to which these have changed over time, including recent work on online abuse and marginalisation of women and minoritised groups in public life. As well as the book we're discussing today, she is the co-editor of Online Othering, Exploring Digital Violence and Discrimination on the Web, and she is co-director of Digipol, the Centre for Digital Politics, Media and Democracy. Dr Sally Osei-Apia is a research fellow in media and communication at the University of Leeds. Her research interrogates women's political communication strategies, the textual and visual representation of gender in media content and forms of digital campaigning. She is also interested in the intersecting impact of political communication on democratic engagement. She is particularly focused on media representations of women politicians in Ghana and Nigeria examining their representations on national press and radio media, the factors which shape production of political news, and women's strategies for self-representation in Facebook campaigns. So I'm delighted to welcome you both to the podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Hi, yeah, thanks for having me. (laughs) Um, So, uh, Emily, if I could turn to you first, I wonder if you um, could um, introduce us to, to the book and to your research more widely. Okay, yeah, so the book um, is a sort of culmination of quite quite a long time um, I've spent doing this work. So what I'm, the book basically explores um, newspaper representations of women politicians, leaders, women voters, and um, wives of, well, spouses and relatives of um, politicians from 1918 all the way up to 2017. So it's a sort of historical study of the, of the, the first century of um, women being able to participate in elections um, in a direct way. So the book has, you know, each of those women has their own chapter. Um, and then I'm kind of looking at continuities and changes over time, which um, <laughs> was quite, you know, there was a lot going on there that we could probably unpack in the next half an hour. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I was really struck by is how, you know, if there was a kind of uh, overarching um, trajectory, it was that coverage seemed to have become more hostile towards women in, in all sorts of ways. Um, I wonder if you, you know, could tell us a bit more about that and what your interpretation of that was. Yeah, so particularly if we focus on um, women politicians um, constantly throughout the entire um, sample, really, you you kind of see them negotiating sexism um, on the campaign trail. But what's really interesting is that early on, they're actually treated with a bit more respect. So a lot of the sexism that gets reported is... um, you know, other candidates saying things like, oh, she should be at home looking after her children, not trying to get into Parliament and stuff like that. Um, And it's kind of not overtly the editorial opinion of, um, you know, the journalist or the newspaper. Whereas as we move forward into the century and, you know, which 
again was a bit surprising given how many more women were kind of coming in at a later date you know you start to see more over sexist coverage that comes directly from the newspaper or journalists involved so um that was kind of a little bit surprising in some ways although you know anybody au fait with the british press is probably not um <laughs> terribly surprised by some of that so i think I'm not sure entirely how to explain it. I think there's a whole load of factors involved in that, in the sense that, you know, the press has cha- changes a lot over that period of time. Some of the, I look at five newspapers in the book, um, and two of them very much changed their political affiliation over the course of that century. Um, and, you know, the partisan nature of the British press obviously plays into it a, a little bit. Um, but there's also um, uh, broader changes, I think, going on. You know, we see a, a, a real rise in more opinionated coverage of, of elections as time goes on, which is kind of what we're used to now. Um, earlier examples were kind of slightly drier, more kind of factual. These candidates were standing in this constituency and this is how it's going. Whereas obviously now we're kind of used to much more opinion columnists talking about people. Um, and that's where most of, I would say, the kind of directly sexist and misogynistic coverage is coming from. Yeah, so I, I wanted to add that from an international perspective, because I have worked um, in Ghana and Nigeria, I can see the increase in in negative reporting and sexist reporting of women politicians. And I think that one of the key factors that I have found from these two contexts that I have looked at is the, is the trend towards the commercialization of news and news media in general. And so um, when I spoke to journalists in Ghana and Nigeria, one of the things that they strongly came out was the fact that they are all appealing to the same audience. So they need to do something. They need to create content that shocks and that drives audience attention to their content to be able to sell um, their content. And so they go for those um, things that shock um, and so the more sexist, for instance, or the more negative, for instance, um, their reporting is of women, particularly, um, then, you know, they're able to draw more audience attention to their content. So from that international perspective, I can say that one of the reasons for the increase in um, negative reporting or the adversarial reporting of women politicians is due to that commercialization and the, the increase in commercialization that we are seeing often um, um, with news media. Yeah, I have to say, I guess that I would agree with that in the sense that, you know, um, newspaper sales figures have been dropping for decades. Mm-hmm. So they, they have to do something, I guess, to yeah. try and enliven politics mm-hmm. for, you know, the audience. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, it's important to remember a lot of these papers in my book that I've looked at um, are now tabloids. They may yeah. not have started out yeah. life that mm-hmm. way, but obviously tabloid newspapers, for the most part, the, polit- the political coverage is, you know, not exactly what always what the audience is there for. Mm-hmm. Um, political coverage is quite a small section um, of their entire offer. So, uh, yeah, if it has to be kind of snappy and fit in with the broader mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, style of reporting that they're doing in general. So, uh, absolutely, commercialization is definitely a factor. Mm-hmm. And you've already you were talking before about um, the partisan nature of um, of the newspapers that you were looking at. 
what to what extent is the um the representation of women associated with their party or does kind of their political affiliation not matter so much as the fact that they are a woman if you see what I yeah I see what you mean I think for women so women in general so in the book I've got a chapter on leaders and then I've got a general chapter on um kind of more you know politicians broadly so backbenchers basically or you know those seeking to be backbenchers um and I would say certainly for leaders when they come into the fore, you know, when we don't get our first leader until 1979. So after that point, I would say that um, in terms of positive coverage, partisanship is probably key. This is why I think Thatcher received quite a lot of positive coverage compared to, you know, her subsequent party leaders, female party leaders that come much later on. Um, was because of, you know, the press is always in, in Britain is skewed centre-right and further right sometimes. Um, so I think that is a factor for leaders. I think women in general, I wouldn't say um, their political ideologies are very well explored at all, other than, you know, stating that they're from this party or whatever. Um, you don't often get very much interrogation of their kind of political beliefs which um, is interesting, and I'm not sure that's entirely gendered, but I think it does have gendered effects in that, you know, it positions women politicians as, you know, not as political as they might be, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah, definitely. Um, And one thing that was really interesting about the book and um, that I hadn't necessarily been expecting is that is your focus on women as voters. Um, So you're not just looking at kind of um, women who are active you know, regular participants in the political sphere, but also looking at how women voters are um, represented. And I was really struck by the the continuities here in the way that they're um, associated with particular issues and then later kind of constructed as um, dependents. I wonder if you could say more about that. Yeah, I mean, I I felt like it was an important aspect of this research to look at women in general you know we we know a lot of research tends to focus on women politicians because they're kind of easier to access I guess so women voters um, often when they appear in the news are kind of lumped together as a as a group or they are women voters in general you don't get um, much individualization until much later on so, yeah, there's a startling amount of continuity in terms of the way they're talked about. So from the early days, of, you know, 1918 into the 1920s, we get this kind of established pattern where women are mothers and, you know, carers, or they are consumers who are looking after the household budget. So lots of discussion around you know women understanding the price of money because they have to do the shopping and that really kind of endures I would say well into the 1970s and it's not really until the 80s where you start seeing women um, talked about in relation to other policy areas in as much detail so and as you say you know then we get a um, focus on them as service users so you know the kind of users of the health service or users of kind of government services. So, yeah, they kind of become 
dependence in terms of the policy issues that they're associated with. Although what I found was quite interesting in was in a slightly contradictory way is that when um, when women are these kind of consumers and mothers early on, they're actually almost a little bit more active early on. You know, they're they're out there, they're being reported, talking to politicians and saying, you know, the price of bread is a is a scandal. You know, particularly in you know the post-war years when rationing was still on and so on. So they're much more active in that sense than later. But at the same time, later on, you actually start to see more individual women's voices being quoted in the news, or they're telling you their story about how their son couldn't access healthcare because of cuts to services and so on. So it's a kind of odd um, situation where, you know, they're more individual later, but they're dependent, but they also have more of a voice. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, it was quite difficult to make sense of all those kind of contradictions um, going when I was trying to pull it all together. And that actually, you know, in terms of kind of hearing the voice of the kind of quote unquote ordinary voter is actually quite a stark contrast to what you find in terms of women politicians whose voices are actually heard much more frequently earlier on and you identify a kind of decline in direct reporting of of what they have to say. Yeah, Um, so very early on, so we're talking into war years here, um, there are actually quite... um, it's quite rare to quote any politician at length, just because I think of reporting conventions, most of the um, reporting is about um, saying, this is what's happening and these are the people. Or conversely, they've got really long articles where they produce speeches from you know, David Lloyd George or people like that. Um, so basically, women's voices increase in the kind of 1950s, 1960s in terms of politicians. But then they they start to decline um, in weirdly in the 1970s and 1980s when you think you know having a female prime minister in the 80s that that would mean that she would get to speak more but um, actually she's talked about rather a lot more than she actually gets to be quoted directly um, and this kind of again and also she sort of pushes out the voices of other women. Um, who are politicians who are just fade into the background a little bit, who barely barely have a voice um, during the time when we have a female prime minister. So, yeah, it's again, there's no sort of uniform pattern, which is why I think it's actually really important to differentiate between the different kinds of women in the coverage and which is why I kind of approached it in that way, because it became clear that there was not going to be, a, you know, a, a continuity between the different types of women. Yeah, and I, one of the things that's really interesting in the book, in, if we're talking about kind of types of women, is your um, interrogation of the role of the political wife, um, who, you know, usually is a political wife, um, although there are also there are men's spouses. Um, but uh, you talk quite a lot about how this focus on the role of the political wife um, serves to sustain politics as a as a male field and to kind of normalize you know the male figure as, as the actor and and the and the as the woman as the supporting role yeah and I think actually again this is something that I wanted to look at because you know I well I started the research as a PhD student around um, the 2010 election and you know we saw in 2010 a, a real focus on the wives of you know the prime minister and the the people that were vying to be prime minister um and it kind of struck me as as 
unusual like we didn't normally we didn't see those women being you know in political coverage as much you know it felt new so I wanted to kind of explore that historically and what I found was and this in many ways is one of the kind of most interesting things about the the book is that early on political wives if you want to call them that were actually very political so um, they're kind of giving speeches they're you know campaigning directly on the cost of living on foreign policy there's all sorts of quotes in the book from speeches that women have given on the platform where they're speaking for their husbands or occasionally another male relative so sometimes you have daughters um, speaking as well or sisters Um, but it's mainly it's mainly wives and we become become much more focused on the the spouse relationship in the post-war period um, and and then on into the kind of later half of the 20th century and early 21st century the wife becomes the one that gets reported although as time goes on they become less politis, politi- overtly party political and much more kind of political in the sense of how they're covered as you know these supportive figures who are there you know holding their husband's hand and showing him up to be this good good ideal politician because he's got you know he's a kind of straight straight white man with a family so he's what you expect a politician to be so yeah I sort of argue and then sorry just to contradict myself I then found find later we get much more hostility towards certain wives who are perceived as political so at first Mm. they're celebrated then they become depoliticized and then later when they are perceived as being repoliticized they they get lots of negative coverage about interfering you know, which is where you get these kind of um, stereotypes around people like um, Sherry Blair um, being too kind of seen as too um, grasping or too um, involved and wanting to kind of have power for herself. So you asked about, yeah, and I think that basically kind of shows us in a kind of microcosm these women who are you know at the end of the day citizens many of whom are political activists in their own right are kind of treated as um the appendage to the man who is putting themselves forward as leader often so again over over the course of the century become much more focused on the wives of of party leaders um rather than you know wives of politicians in general so they're kind of used as a resource to kind of show up, shore up the credentials of the man who is seeking to lead. Um, and I think, you know, this is not surprising in international context as well. I think this is much more usual in a kind of presidentialized system. We think of the US First Lady, for example. But, you know, it's very evident that in the era of, you know, per- increasing personalization around political campaigning that, the families and wives in particular are kind of used as a resource to kind of showcase the male ideal male leader almost if yeah definitely. so in my own research when i've been looking at women mps in the 1940s and 50s one of the things that i have really been struck by is one of the obstacles that these women who want to be active in politics find is that selection committees and constituencies kind of expect that you're going to be a two for one package. And so what they find that, they, you know, part of the reason that the, the selection committees want a man is because they'll get a wife as well. Um, they don't have the same expectations of, of the, 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 the 
um, a female politician's husband. They know that they're only going to get the woman. Um, and for single women, of course, this is magnified even more. And people like Ellen Wilkinson are always saying things like, I, I wish I had a wife who could like help me out with all the things that I need to do. Um, so I was really struck by um, all the things you were, were saying. Um, Sally, I wonder if I could bring you in as well to talk about um, uh, self-representation and, um, and how that differs from, from, from press representation. Or in your own work, are you finding more that um, that women politicians have to work within the the kind of cultural norms that are being established by by these dominant representations. Right. Um, so the reason I wanted to, I mean, if you read the gendered mediation literature, there's a lot of focus on um, how the women are represented and not so much on how the women represent themselves. So when I was doing my PhD, I thought, okay, let me look at if there are differences between the way the women represent themselves, especially on social media, for instance, as opposed to how the media talks about them or represents them. And I must say that, honestly, um, I was a bit shocked, actually, to realize that because the, the argument is that because women politicians are so negatively represented in traditional media, um, one way of contesting that, one way of contesting their marginalization and their sexualized, represent, uh, sexist representation um, is to use self-representation to contest that. But, but that's not really what I saw when I looked at women politicians in Ghana and Nigeria. And I think that depends on the political level of, of, of the women politician. Um, so what I found out that in Ghana, for instance, you have the MPs and then you have women at the district levels. And then, of course, you have the presidential um, um, candidates, whereas in Nigeria, it follows the U.S. system. So it's, it's, it's a federal system where you have um, senators at the, uh, you know, at the state level and then you have um, sort of like the representatives, the House of Representatives um, within um, the state. And so there are different levels of political levels that women can apply for. Um, when I looked at Facebook, for instance, because at the time I, I did this in 2017 and 2018, um, I realized that for one, um, I expected more women politicians to be on Facebook, but they weren't, especially in Nigeria. There were less women politicians on Facebook than there were in Ghana. So it seemed as if women politicians in Ghana were, you know, showing themselves up more on, on Facebook than those in, in Nigeria. But then I also noticed that it wasn't as professional, so their representation wasn't as professionalized as I had seen other women in the UK, for instance. And there's a whole argument about the professionalization of political communication um, now. And to my surprise, I mean, a lot of the women that I saw on Facebook seemed to be um, posting themselves or managing the accounts themselves. And, and I was, I was um, struck by that. And so one of the things that I interviewed, I asked them about in the interviews was um, if they managed the account themselves and if they didn't, who um, did they have a team to manage the accounts um, as I suppose they would, or did they have one person to do that, et cetera. And what, what emerged was that 
you know, in Ghana and Nigeria, there are a lot of contextual factors that affect the extent to which social media is seen as an important medium of um, political communication or as a source of campaign. Um, there are high internet costs compared to, um, let's say, here in the UK. Um, and so the, the idea is that, especially those representing rural areas, may not have constituents who use social media as much as you'd have those represented representing urban areas. And so those ideas went into decisions or, or, or um, you know, evaluations of how useful social media was as a campaign tool. And so um, generally, there were more men, and male politicians using social media than the women politicians. Um, also because, um, you know, what the women said was that if they need to, they don't have, they, they work within very strict um, time constraints. So they don't have time to be regularly posting on social media um, as they need to. And so the, the ideal thing would be to have a team or someone else who manages their, their account. But that involves a lot of money. And in Ghana and Nigeria, you have a political culture that is very clientelist. And so um, voters, I mean, there's a lot of vote buying voting decisions can even change on the day of um, 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 voting, depending on whether um, a candidate pays more to voters than, than another candidate. And so you have all these different sort of factors, the high cost of internet cost, considerations of whether constituents are in rural or urban um, 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 areas, um, money in terms of you need money to hire people to manage um, your account. And if you, if you don't have that money because you have to spend all that money in ensuring that voters vote for you on the day, um, women tend to focus more on traditional methods of campaigning, such as door-to-door canvassing, um, doing um, rallies, um, etc., than campaigning on social media. So generally, and, and sorry for my long answer, but you, you find that generally um, women politicians are not utilizing social media as much as they can because of these, you know, different sets of contextual factors. Um, uh, can I just ask a question? Yes. Yeah, no, I, I, that's super interesting, Sally. I was just wondering, you flagged up the kind of difference there where men were more likely to be on social media. When they were on social media, did you mm-hmm. find any kind of attempt, you know, were women candidates kind of promoting themselves as women or were they kind of very similar kind of campaigning styles I'm just wondering you know in terms of Mm. how people um try to appeal you know what what do they base their appeal on in these kinds Mm. of communications Mm. um so like I said earlier it it depended so the sort of campaign strategies that were employed on social media by women politicians uh, largely dependent on their political level. So what I noticed was that MPs, for instance, who were on social media um, seemed to have 
to some extent, more professionalized representation than those at the district level or the local level, for instance. And these MPs, um, most of the time, focused on um, informational content, so about their political activities. So a lot of the time, this is what I'm doing. I met this person. Um, I'm doing talking about this policy, etc. So it wasn't they did not represent themselves as women. They represented themselves as candidates, if you know what I mean. So the, the content was mainly political and there wasn't a lot of um, like uh, emotional content that, you know, or, or one that you find that is more relating to their private lives. However, for those who were at the more local level, I saw that there was less professionalization, less talking about their um, political lives and um, more about their day-to-day normal lives. Um, And that was quite interesting for me. So maybe if they attended a wedding or if they attended, um, you know, a funeral, and usually maybe this is like within their constituency, then they would mention. So it was a mix of everything else. And and, and I suppose that was also because they were managing the accounts themselves. So it wasn't as professionalized as I found with... um, those are the higher levels, like the MPs or the senators. So that's the difference um, that I saw. And how do these kind of forms of self-representation, like how does that read across to your understanding of um, other forms of media in um, in Ghana and Nigeria? Uh, how does it compare with the ways that they're talked about in the press or, um, you know, on, on broadcast media, for example? Mm. Um, well, so I had the benefit of looking at radio because radio is quite dominant in, in Ghana and Nigeria. And then I looked I looked at the press um, and then I interviewed the women themselves in addition to politicians and um, journalists. Um, so the differences, um, and this, is, this was quite interesting, radio is very generally very sexist in representing women politicians. And um, there's a lot of marginalization as well. So you won't find that they they talk in terms of sources, all right, and in terms of um, topics, for instance, there's less focus on women and on women politicians. So when I asked the journalists, for instance, why this is so, what they said was that, you know, they go to the women politicians to ask them for interviews, etc., and they don't come because they're afraid, you know, and, and that was interesting for me. So when I spoke to the women politicians, what they said was that it's not mainly that they are afraid, but it's that the, the kind of discussion is, can, tends to be so adversarial. And so it, it comes, it comes, to how women are expected to um, um, behave in public. So in Ghana and Nigeria, these are very traditional patriarchal societies. Women are expected to be mothers, to be caring, um, to be wives, you know, to be submissive to men, etc. And so when they come on radio programs, for instance, and there's a lot of 
you know, um, adversarial discussions, a lot of insults being bandied between the candidates. And this is mainly from male politicians. Um, the women felt uncomfortable by, uh, by this, and they felt that journalists needed to put a stop to that level of um, um, you know, negativity in discussions and focus more on policy. But that was not what they were doing because, again, like I mentioned earlier on, these are journalists who are looking for content that shocks, content that draws um, audience attention to, 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 to their radio stations, for instance. And so there, there's a, a real tension between, and, and I found that interesting, Emily, that you mentioned that, that the double bind, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That if, if you really want, it's the political culture is so masculinized that it's very adversarial, it's full of insults, it's very negative. And as a woman, because you're expected to be, you know, like gentle and caring and well-behaved, when you get into that um, realm of politics and you engage in this sort of negativity, you receive a lot of backlash from the audience who call in and say, why is she being... Um, so rude? Why is she being so arrogant? Whereas the same is not said for men. And so you see that the, the, the women have to deal with this. And then when it comes to their self-representation, it's, it's, it becomes, um, you know, tricky because then how do you maneuver these different tensions in the way you present? Do you represent yourself as a, 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 a woman or do you represent yourself as um, a candidate, in which case you have to show that you are assertive, you are competent, you are, you, you are all those. So they, they have to deal with these tensions. It's super interesting though, yeah. Sally. <laughs> and I guess we see that across the world, don't we? Like people having yeah. to negotiate those kinds of barriers. Yeah. So I I thought, Emily, I, I thought that, I mean, I, I'm really fascinated by, um, you know, the way you look at the the, the spouses of, of political leaders. And I thought that that was so fascinating, seeing how they begin by being politicized and then, you know, their representation changes and they're depoliticized at some point. And then, you know, they begin to receive negative coverage because of, you know, um, um, becoming political activists or being seen as delving into politics when, they, they, they shouldn't be doing that. Um, I thought that was really interesting because what I have seen in Ghana, for instance, um, we had a head of state that ruled for um, over 20 years. And then um, his wife, Nana Kunedua Rollins, became sort of like, she, she, she came out and contested at the presidential level. And one of the things that she always complained about and was frustrated about was the fact that every time, or most of the time, at least from the beginning of her presidential campaign, when she was referred to, it was often the wife of, <laughs> and, and not, not, you know, in her own capacity as a presidential candidate. And that infuriated her so much, you know, but besides her, um, if I look at all the wives of, of the presidents we've had, and even in Nigeria as well, they do have that, you know, they, they tend to engage in courses, but most of them support what their husbands do rather than stand on their own as independent candidates. Do you know what I mean? So I thought that was really interesting, seeing that trajectory of how 
the wives of political leaders um, um, are, have been represented historically. Yeah, well, it's quite interesting in the UK Parliament, the first, mm. um, well, the first three, I think, women MPs were all the wives of the former person who had that seat. So it mm. kind of shows that, you know, the kind of family being involved in the party is kind of important. Um Mm-hmm. And that obviously kind of weakens, I guess. But yeah, loads of people like Cherie Blair, for example, she stood for election mm-hmm. herself. Um, Glenis Kinnock was, Neil Kinnock's wife was, you know, a, an MEP at one point. So yeah, lo- obviously, like, you know, political types attract. So of course, they're going to have, mm-hmm. uh, it depends who gets the seat first, I guess, in a lot of these kind of relationships. I'd like to thank Emily and Sally for joining us this week and for their fascinating uh, conversation. And thanks to all of you for listening. Women, Media and Elections, Representation and Marginalisation in British Politics is out now. Please do subscribe to our podcast for future episodes. You can also find the Myland Institute on social media. And if you sign up for the mailing list on our website, you'll always hear first about our future events.